How about that introduction to John's ministry from Luke? Just to make sure you didn't miss any of the names. In the 15th year of the reign of the Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. This is Luke's point. Emperors have their time. Governors have their time. Kings and generals and temple priests have their time. And God has God's time. And God has God's place. And God has God's way of doing things. And they're usually a little weird. So into a world filled with military power and political intrigue and religious expediency, the word of God comes to a hairy desert wild man who eats bugs. I like that. I like that a lot. God comes to a man who in turn calls people to repentance and change to prepare a way in their hearts and in their lives for the coming of God. And John was not subtle in his preaching. You brood of vipers, he says to the people who come out to see him in the wilderness. It's not really the message you want to give on the third Sunday of Advent, right? And true confessions, when we put together the bulletin, we left that part out. Because we're wimps. (laughs) Well, we want it to be a little more gentle. And um, as we worked on things this week, it became clear to us that that part really needed to be in there, which is why we had Bailey include it this morning. Advent isn't just getting ready for a birthday party. Advent is about preparing the way of the Lord, and preparing the way of the Lord usually requires repentance. Now, repentance is one of those kind of harsh religious words that we mainline Christians don't use very often. Repent! Lane, can you show us how it was said in Alabama at a real church? Repent conjures up revival tents and sermons seeking with brimstone and fire. Repentance doesn't seem to fit with the modern mainline discipleship needs of 2022. Or does it? I think the sharp edge of John the Baptist's message can cut through 2,000 years of time to have critical relevance to the way we live our lives right now and the way we approach the birth of Christ this Christmas. But first, let's get out of the way what repentance is not. Repentance is not 
about feeling lousy about yourself. Repentance is not about wishing you were a better person or feeling like if you just got yourself really squeaky clean, you, could, you would be okay with God or convincing God that you're really, 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 really sorry about the things that you haven't done right. Guilt and repentance are not the same thing. Though guilt can lead to repentance, it can be a step along the way. Shame and repentance are absolutely not the same thing, and what's interesting is that shame usually doesn't lead to repentance. Shame paralyzes us. Right. It makes, shame makes, can make repentance impossible. In the Bible, repentance is not anything negative, and we've managed to make it that way in the modern church. But in Scripture, repentance is a positive step. It's a positive action. In both the Greek, where the word is metanoia, and in the Hebrew, where the word is shuv, the word repent literally means to turn around. If you're walking this way, that's the wrong way. You turn around and go a different direction. It connotes a new way of life. It connotes a new direction of life. It denotes a new perspective on life. It's a a new way of living, being on fire for love, love for everyone and everything around us. Repentance is a positive, not a negative. And so when John says to the crowds, bear fruits worthy of repentance, they say, well, what should we do? And he gives them some examples. If you have two coats and someone doesn't have one, give them your second coat. Don't charge people more than you should and skim off the top. Don't use your power to make other people miserable. And each of those instructions has a really practical day-to-day aspect to it. It, It's about making the world a place of more justice, uh, that's more whole and holy. And each of those also has a spiritual aspect to it. It's about making ourselves more whole and holy, as well as the world around us. The Christian sociologist Diana Butler Bass says that all Christian practices work in that same doubling way, where there's a social aspect and a heart aspect to it. So that the practice of hospitality uh, opens our hearts to those who are strangers, uh, but it also anticipates that in God's kingdom, there will one day be no strangers. The practice of forgiveness cleanses our souls from guilt and shame, and it also looks forward to a time when all will be forgiven in God's kingdom. The practice of charity shares what we have with those who suffer want, uh, but it also anticipates that in God's realm there will be no more hunger or pain or sorrow or fear. And the practice of stewardship creates a generous spirit in us, even as it anticipates God's kingdom where money and possessions will cease to exist and all will be God's. Diana Butler Bass says that 
Christian practice helps us to be better and wiser and more gracious individuals, even as those very practices anticipate and help create the coming reality of God's kingdom entering into the world. This is what John means by bearing fruits worthy of repentance. Now, then we have to ask, how does this look? What does this look like in today's world? There are a lot of examples when we look around in the community. Uh, uh, here at Harvard Epworth and the ministries we do to help out in the world, uh, to help out in the local community. Uh, but this morning we want to tell you about a particular one, uh, about one person in particular named Elias Shakur. Elias Shakur is an archbishop in the Melkite Greek Catholic Church in Israel. And like John the Baptist, Elias was, came from very humble beginnings. He was born to a poor Christian family in a small town in the Galilee. And when he was eight years old, his family was told to pack their possessions and go away for two weeks. It was um, what was happening as that part of the world was becoming Israel and they were never allowed to go back to their home. They ended up settling in, <clears throat> in another village um, and making a home there. And um, Elias talks about how there was tension and violence and strife between Jews and Palestinians from then until now. And he talks about the words of his father who said to him, we do not use violence ever even if someone hurts us. His father would say to him again and again, the Jews and the Palestinians are brothers, blood brothers. We share the same father, Abraham, and the same God. We must never forget that. It made a deep impression on him as a child. So he went on to become a priest in the Melkite Greek Catholic Church. It's a sort of an Eastern Orthodox-ish uh, denomination. He was ordained in 1965, and then he, he, he went to Paris for seminary. He returned to Israel and um, took further studies in Greek, or excuse me, in Hebrew and in Syriac and in Aramaic, and studied the Talmud at uh, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He was the first Arab to receive an advanced degree from Hebrew University. And in the first town where he served as priest in Ibelin, I think that's the right way to say it, um, he recognized that the education of Palestinians was decidedly second class. And in fact, there was no education offered to them after eighth grade. And so he founded a school where children of all faiths would be welcome. It was called Mar Elias. Um, he founded it in 1982. There were 80 students when it started, and it now has more than 4,000. Mar Elias is known in that area for offering an excellent education to any who come, and it serves Muslim and Christian and Druze and Jewish students. It has since the beginning. Elias Shakur is determined to provide that excellent education, but that's not the main point, he says. In his own words, we are a Christian school. We are a very seriously committed Christian school. And because we are very seriously committed Christians, 
We need to invite our Muslim and Jewish brothers and sisters, please come and share the goodness that God has given undeservedly to all of us. Come and share that with us. One of the founding teachers at Mar Elias talks about what it is they try to do when they have such a wide range of students from Jewish, Druze, Christian, and Muslim backgrounds. And he describes it this way. We teach them what it means to be a human being. We teach them righteousness. We try to plant the seeds of love, peace, reconciliation, and acceptance in the heart of the younger generation so that when they grow up, these seeds can become the future. So Elias Shakur is planting the fruits of repentance right where he is. And he's faced resistance on all sides. The Israeli government has given immense resistance to this school, the founding of this school and the continuation of it. It's been vandalized time after time. And he himself was once kidnapped and interrogated by the PLO because they couldn't figure out whose side he was on. And they kept him for quite a while before they agreed to let him go back to his peacemaking work. Through it all, he has maintained his faith and his witness. As people who follow Jesus, we cannot use violence. As people who believe that God loves us, we must recognize that God loves everyone, that all children are children of God, and all children are our children. So if that was all Elias Shakur did, was to found an interfaith school for K-12 through students in the midst of one of the most divided countries in our world, that alone would be fruits worthy of repentance. But what I find so fascinating about him is the way he takes his commitment to forgive, for, his commitment to forgiveness and nonviolence way beyond just tolerating or welcoming others, takes it to the place of celebrating others. He demonstrates an amazing capacity for deep personal and social healing. In 2001, he was given an honorary degree by Emory University in Atlanta. And listen to this quote from his address at that event. You who live in the United States, if you are pro-Israel, on behalf of Palestinian children, I call unto you, give further friendship to Israel. They need your friendship but stop interpreting that friendship as an automatic antipathy against me, the Palestinian who is paying the bill for what others have done against my beloved Jewish brothers and sisters in the Holocaust and Auschwitz and elsewhere. That made me think when I read that. And then he goes on to say, and if you have been enlightened enough to take the side of the Palestinians, oh, bless your hearts, he says. Take our sides, because for once you will be on the right side, right? But 
If taking our side would mean to become one-sided against my Jewish brothers and sisters, back up. We do not need such friendship. We need one more common friend. We do not need one more enemy, for God's sake. I just realized that back up should be translated shuv, repent. Indeed, yes. You could say he could have said repent, but then they would have thought they were at Lane's church and they would have been very confused. This is the fruit of repentance that Elias Shakur demonstrates. He offers and he lives a solution that is far beyond the two-sided question of which side of the conflict are you on. He finds a third way that acknowledges and enters into the conflict, into everyone's pain and refuses to settle for a binary us-or-them solution. He looks for everyone to be unified, to be reconciled. So 2,000 years ago, the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist in the wilderness, and he called people to repentance, giving witness to what was to come, a coming Messiah. It wasn't there yet, but it was coming. And Shakur gives witness in his life to what he's already experienced, which is the love and the power of Jesus, which makes his work of forgiveness possible. And that work leads toward a future of peace and reconciliation. And we, too, witness to what we've experienced Mm. We don't need to spend Advent improving ourselves so that it's all perfect when God gets here. Advent is about recognizing that God loves us already, just as we are, and way too much to leave us the way we are. If we catch just the tiniest hint of God's amazing love for us, then we can't wait to clear a path for God to come into the world. So hear these words of Advent good news. The same words that came 2,000 years ago into a world full of military power and political intrigue and religious expediency, where the word of God came to John the Baptist, into our world, which is also full of military power and political intrigue and religious experience. Expediency. Expediency. The word came to someone like Elias Shakur. And it comes to you and to me this Advent. So together, let's prepare the way of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Our next hymn is in the faith we sing in the small black hymnal, number 2089, Wild and Lone, the Prophet's Voice. 